you have your Bibles, we'll be in Philippians today. Philippians. Uh, these are bulletins. We print these out each week. I want to point out a couple things to you. Uh, one, on the front, there are not three E's in needy. That's on me. Uh, and also, there is no such thing as Philippians 37. I do not know what happened there. That's on me. Again, that is not even the memory verse of the week. I apologize. But what I really want to show you is the reason we put these, uh, I print the words each week, or we print the words each week, is because every now and then I'll be singing in a line, in a song that we've sung a hundred times before will grab me. This week it was just, it was, I had to pull out the bulletin to look. To remind. Uh, it says, uh, in Come You Sinners Poor Needy, it says, it is finished, it is finished, it is finished. And in this line, sinner, will this not suffice? Just like the rest, right? That, that what more can I be doing, right? I feel like I'm so often working and working and working and working in the line, it is finished. Jesus utters on the cross, like, will that suffice? What am I gonna add to that? The beauty of that. So we print these out, those are there for you. Uh, All right. Let's do this. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians today. I love uh, children. I once went to, not too long, it was a few years ago, I went to a pastor's conference, which is not my thing. I don't love that. Uh, the idea of putting a bunch of pastors in the room and asking them to talk is a terrible idea. Uh, it's just you're going to be there all day because uh, they talk for a living, right? And so uh, it's just uh, somebody made the terrible mistake at this. It was a, it was a, I felt guilty, so I went. It was a conference for church pastors of small churches. And so I went, uh, and someone made the terrible mistake of saying, let's go around the room. And I was like, oh, no. Oh boy, we are not getting out of here today. And uh, so it was a small, it was a small group, but they went around. And here's the thing that struck me about that. I, I was glad that I went because of this. As I was going around, um, these people that these men that were pastoring small churches, there was a thing that they all repeated: "We haven't seen children in a decade or more," and they were just heartbroken over it. Just crushed, devastated. And it got, and you know, the whole time, like the first person that says it, I'm still being dismissive in my normal, uh, terrible human being self. And I'm like, do you want some of ours? You know, like, uh, we have too many. Uh, and then as it kept going, it was like more than one, it was like this repeated refrain. I was just convicted. It, what a gift to have children and life in a church. What, what, what a beautiful, beautiful thing. A gift that, that we're in a stage of, of our church where God is continuing to bless us with kids. Uh, maybe God was serious when he said, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, and just fill the world with tiny images of him. And so, uh, what a gift. I'm, I'm grateful to be in a church that not only, not only we have kids, but values that. Because uh, here's, the, here's the reality. Uh, sometimes having kids in the, in the service for as long as we keep kids in the service, uh, it, some people think it can be a distraction. And here's, but here's the truth. It absolutely is a distraction. But it's so valuable and to be in a church that recognizes the value of, yeah, like they move and they make noise, but you know what? Their, their hearts are being shaped. What, what a gift. So I'm grateful for you, the church. So uh, one of the things that we um, believe at BCC, one of the things that kind of maybe is motivating, there was this verse that kind of messed me up uh, uh, about kids stuff a while, a while ago, and so I repeat it often. Uh, it's in uh, the Old Testament, and there's a nation that's, uh, God's risen up, uh, raised up this nation, these descendants of Abraham, and he's gonna bless the world through these descendants. So they've ended up in slavery in Egypt, and God is leading them out. We're currently uh, on, on, in the middle of an Exodus series, but we're not doing that today, but leads them out of Egypt and takes them to the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the desert. And Moses, who led them out of Egypt, does not the one that takes them in the promised land. It's this guy named Joshua. 
And uh, they're supposed to go into the promised land and drive everybody out. God said, you, you, you have to drive everybody out of the land. Well, they kind of get, get into the land and kind of get settled and get comfortable, and they kind of just give up on that. And so it says that, uh, the Bible says that, so God came to them and says, hey, like, you, why, why did you stop doing what you're supposed to do? And the co- consequence is going to be uh, that these people these, that you did not drive out that worship foreign gods, the, these people are going to be a thorn in your side. And your kids are going to go after the gods and worship other, want to worship other gods. Why have you done this? And then right after that, it says Joshua, who had led them into the land, and all the elders of that age, they they pass away. And and then Judges 2.10, it says this. It says, there arose a generation that did not know the Lord. Man, that kind of messed me up, right? So what I would say over and over again is, not on our watch. Right, like we're going to teach these kids, and we're going to teach them the right way, and we're going to shove the Bible into them. And if you wake up and scare them, like just Habakkuk might spill out. Right, just like we're just going to fill them with the Bible. Like not on our watch, they will know. They'll know about God. But here's the problem, though. I've been thinking about this. Um, how did these people not know about God? Because all of the chapters before that, right? All of the chapters before Joshua, before Judges, there's all of these laws and rules that everybody's following that have to do with their God. Not only that, they're annual celebrations set up and designed to teach about this God. I don't understand how it was they don't know him. I mean, there was a tabernacle where God dwelled. I'm kind of confused about how they didn't know about this God. And another thing confuses me too. Another thing bugs me. And it's this, is that I know people who know the Bible way better than me that don't love Jesus. Don't follow him. I know people who know the Bible less than we do at BCC. We, we value scripture. We, we, we pour over it. It's, it's a huge thing in, in the life of, of our church. And so there's people that I know, though, that know the Bible less than us that love Jesus more than I do. Like they're live evidence. So I, I'm kind of confused how it is that these people who didn't know, how they didn't know God, and, and also how we can know about the Bible and know about God and still that not change hearts. And I'm confused by that. I'm, I'm worried by that. And here's what I've realized. Here's what I see in scriptures. I look back and I read it. This is what I realize. That knowing about God is not enough. It's not enough. There's things that you have to know. I believe that. There's things you have to know. If, if, if the Bible says in the New Testament, if, if nobody goes and tells them, how are they supposed to know? There's things that we have to know, but I'm convinced that knowing's not enough. Knowing about is not enough. The Bible teaches this weird thing. I, I want to start in, first, in Philippians today. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to this church in Philippi. And he opens with a traditional greeting, a thanksgiving and a greeting. And... Um, but then he, then he closes this intro with, with a prayer in verse 9. And this is his prayer, which I think would be a beautiful prayer for a church or a beautiful prayer for uh, um, children. Anyway, it says this. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul says that he wants them to be ready, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's 
to be ready for the day that you meet your maker and you stand before God and give account for the life that you've lived. I want you to be ready for that, he says. I want you to be pure and blameless, ready for that day that when you, and that's what we want for you, that's what I want for these kids, that's what I want for me is to stand before God one day and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. This show up to stand before my maker one day, and, and he says, you know, like, why are you here? And I go, but no account of my own. I am only here because I am found in Christ by faith. Like, that is what I want for our kids. That's what I want for me. And so Paul says he wants this. He wants them to be ready for the day of Christ Jesus, for when, when they stand before their maker. And he says, but he says the way that you get there, though, seems, this is what's interesting to me. His prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul's telling them what he wants for them is that their love would increase beyond measure so that they can understand. We don't think that way though, right? Like, show me the facts and then I will find out whether whether, whether or not it's worth a thing giving myself to. That's kind of how I think. And he says this, I want your love to grow and grow and grow and abound so much that you finally get it that you see, that you know and you understand this relationship that you have with God and how that's even possible, that you grow in your knowledge of that because of how great your love is and that you grow in your understanding that no matter what kind of situation that you face, that you've so grown in love so much that when you face any kind of situation, whether it's prosperity or whether it's trouble and trial and and tribulation, no matter what you face, your love is so great that you have God's discernment to know what to do. Love precedes knowledge is a weird thing. But the Bible seems to say that over and over again. And it's kind of intuitive, right? I mean, like, so, sometimes as a pastor, people will come to me thinking that I will make their life easier. I almost never do. It's always going to be way harder. Like, people, like, somebody, like, hey, I have a question. I'm like, you know how this is going to turn out? And she's like, yeah, I know who I texted. Like, it's going to be hard. I'm, I'm going to ask you to do the hard thing, you know? To forgive when you don't want to forgive, to love when you don't want to love. It's always going to be the hard thing that I ask of you. Uh, and they, they think that I'm going to give them some kind of like wise counsel and I, almost, I, I don't have that for them. Um, but uh, some people come and say, hey, like, tell me, I'm, I'm going to be a father soon. Or I'm going to be a mother soon. Tell me what it's like, uh, what I need to do. And, and, and I give almost no advice at all. And here's why. Because the moment that you hold your child, when I've held my sons for the first time, like, everything changes. Like the world shifts on its axis a little bit. Everything that I thought before, I knew before, is, is now different. I, I think about things different once I held my child. And it's not just in children. You, you, you know this in many other ways. You encounter a thing, you fall in love for a thing, and it affects how you think about that thing. Uh, your love for something or someone can blind you to truth or it can lead you to truth. Your love affects you and how you think. It's un. Believable, And the Bible talks about it this way over and over and over again. I think it wasn't the, the generations, the generations that rose up that didn't know the Lord. It's not because they didn't know about the Lord. They didn't know him because they just never learned to love him. The love leads to the knowing, to that relationship. It's not because he didn't pursue them. When the Bible talks about people, uh, it talks about them not as as how they live, humans how we live. Uh, it, it talks about us living not from our brains, but we live out of our heart. That's the word the Bible uses. Sometimes bowels, actually. Something inside of you is the place that you live out of. Something inside of us is where decisions are made that lead us to how we act and how we think. Uh, 
There's something inside of us, and it's not our brain. The Bible talks about it as our, as our heart, not just like this ooey-gooey feeling, but the center of you, the place you act out of is your heart in the Bible, which is why the Bible says things like in Proverbs, it says, above all else, guard your heart. Everything else that you do flows from it. What you do doesn't flow from what you think, according to the Bible, but from what you love. We were created to be loving beings. We are loving beings. That is what the Bible says, that we were created by a God who in himself is Trinity, in himself is a loving relationship. John says God is love. This is the core of who he is. And then we were created, the first thing the Bible says is not good is for man to be alone because we are beings meant to be engaged in relationship. We are meant to love, which is an amazing thing. You've ever, have you ever, you, you know this is true. Here's how you know this is true. Have you ever done something and said, I didn't want to do that, why did I do that? That's because your brain said, don't do that, and your heart said, I'm going to do it anyway. And then you did it, and you went, oh, why did I do that? I didn't want to do that. Yeah, you did. That's why you did it. Our loves are the place that we live out of. We're not primarily thinking beings. We are primarily Loving beings, loving beings. It's not that knowledge is unimportant. It's just that it's not enough. We'll never be able to think our way to holiness. We'll never be able to reason our way there. You live from your heart. You know, have you ever heard uh, the saying? Of course, you have uh, the saying: uh, "You are what you eat." Uh, what they mean is like, you know, like there's just a difference between a person who like in the middle of the night grabs like cold asparagus and eats that and a person who uh, just sees how much cheese was they can fit in their mouth. Like you're like headed in two different directions physically, right? You know what I mean? And it's not that you like actually are cheese whiz or asparagus. It's just that that's where you're headed, you know? It's a trajectory. And so uh, uh, you aren't what you eat. You aren't what you think. You are what you love. Uh, Augustine uh, basically, uh, Augustine says this. He's this uh, fourth, third, fourth century, or fourth century um, uh, African priest. Uh, he says uh, this uh, roughly. He says, you're defined by what you love. It's your loves that govern your actions and your pursuits. You're more defined by what you love than by what you think, know, or believe. It's our loves. So I think about what we want, right? I think for our kids, right? Just for ourselves, right? So often what we want for our kids is a reaction to what we want for ourselves or is a response to what we want for ourselves. But I think about what we want for our kids. And, and, and usually, like when you're watching, like what I want, if you just like, kind of like took a glance, like what do we want? We want our kids to act right, yeah? We, we want them to act right. And when they don't act right, what do we say? what were you thinking, right? Like we wanted to act right, we wanted to think right. And, and, and that's what we really kind of like, sometimes want. We, and we also want to give them opportunities, right? Like I think we're just so worried that we have so many opportunities in this world. Like the town I grew up in didn't even have soccer like because we weren't communists back then. That's what you thought, like soccer's just a communist sport, right? And, and so we didn't even have that. Now like you can do whatever you want. You can play football and soccer and you can do so many things. And I think we're so worried that like what if my kid is the greatest piccolo player ever and I don't give him the opportunity to take piccolo lessons or whatever it is, right? Like, we're, just, like, we're just so worried. We just want them to have so much opportunity because maybe because we didn't have it or just because it's there or we feel guilty that we're not giving our kid those kinds of opportunities. I don't know, but we we want him to have all of these opportunities. There was a study that came out recently. A few, uh, last week, it, just, uh, it was interesting. Uh, the Pew Research uh, released a study, and they had asked parents what they want for their kids. 
Uh, and top of the chart, top two things, over 80% of parents said that is very important. Number one, financial independence. Number two, a job that fulfills them. Over 80%. Interesting. That's what we want for our kids. Uh, less than, around 20% and below was to be married and have kids. Said so that was very important. Which, by the way, hold on a second, this is not part of the sermon, but I just can't pass by this without pointing that this, this thing, something just insane about, about this situation. Uh, if you actually wanted your kids to be financially independent, do you know what the number one determining factor for financial independence? Marriage. Like, if you really want your kids to be financially independent, like, then encourage them to be married. Like, that's the, the math, that's not, that's not the Bible, that's just math. Like, that's just, like, that's what it says. So it's just crazy to me that we, we don't, I don't, I, I'm, my point is this, I don't know that we think very clearly about what we want long term. Maybe, or I wonder what it is that's driving us to think about, as a society, what we want for our kids. I, um... I'm not commending this movie to you. I, I don't remember if there's bad stuff in it or not, but I've seen it more than once. Uh, Terminator 2? Uh, there's this plot of Terminator 2 is, well, there's this woman, and she has, her name's Sarah Connor, and she's, someone that's coming from the past, so, you know, it's based on science. She's come from the past, or she come, uh, someone came from the, past, the future to tell her that uh, her son would be the one that helped fight the rise of the machines. This is the story, right? Like, she, she, you, hey, somebody came from the future, said, hey, listen, your kid, you gotta protect him, like, because the machines are gonna rise up, there's gonna be apocalypse, and your kid is going to be the one that saves us and fights the machines, teaches us how to fight the machines. So all, most of Terminator 2 is her just training her kid to be ready for that moment. Uh, and somebody pointed out recently, that's how I parent like, my parenting style is Sarah Connor. Like, I'm just like, son, you gotta be ready. Like, I'm like, I, like I'm all like, you gotta be prepared. You have to study this. If you don't know, like, you gotta work hard. Like, I just, like, I'm just preparing him for the future. I am just trying to bulletproof him against anything that might happen in the future. You gotta depend on yourself. And like, I just like, that is my tragic parenting style. I'm a Sarah Connor parent. Yeah, interesting in Terminator 2. Kid did not like that at all. What is it that we want? And I just want him to be so independent and so prepared that no matter what comes, that I push and I push and I push and I push and I push. That's what I want for him, just to be prepared. These are the things that naturally spill out of us. What should we want for our kids? Here's what I want for our kids. I want to introduce them to Jesus. I want to tell them all about him, how great he is, how beautiful he is. There's things that I want him to know, and I want them to not only know these things, but I want them to love the right things. I say that I want, I want this, but then my actions day to day maybe demonstrate that that's not really what I want. I want to be a church. I want to be parents. I want to be a people. I want to be singles and married couples and married with kids. I want to be a church that commits ourselves to showing these children and each other how to love right. This guy named uh, James K. Smith. I do not commend to you everything that James K. Smith wrote, but he did write a very helpful book called uh, You Are What You Love, reflecting on this Augustinian idea. And this is what he says. My first argument is that every human being has been created by God as a liturgical animal. In other words, to be human is to be a lover. And to be a lover is to be the unique sorts of creatures whose heart habits 
are shaped by rituals and practices. We are shaped, our heart habits are shaped by ritual and practice. Right now, uh, there's a popular book, it's been out for a while, there's actually many of them in the business world. Uh, One of the most popular is a book called Atomic Habit. Uh, And... uh, in all of these kind of leadership books and leadership styles, uh, what you're going to find is them suggesting that little habits, little changes may have big consequences in the long term. And every single one of these business presentations or business books, they'll all have like some variation, uh, which means that they filter into sermons. Uh, they have some kind of variation on the one or two degree principle, right? Which says this, like if you are one degree off course over 100 yards, you're off by like five feet, not a big deal. Over a mile, it's like 92 feet off. If you're just one degree, if you start one degree off, 92 feet off. If you were trying to fly from San Francisco to D.C., you would land on the other side of Baltimore. If you were one degree off. If you were trying to hit the moon and you were one degree off with a rocket, over 4,000 miles. Uh, Little differences, little changes, little course corrections make a huge difference is the point of all of these books. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Hell begins with a grumbling mood. Always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then, there'll be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell and each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless nipped in the bud. Over eternity, one degree difference makes a big deal. Our hearts shaped in such ways. So you know who's really good at shaping hearts? The world. The world is really good at shaping hearts, always has been. Um, And different generations have different ways that this happened. Um, We have different rhythms, you know, as as kids, I, so when I was a kid, um, in the 80s, our rhythm was pretty much like, as soon as we could get outside, you go outside, right? That was it. Uh, and you would just wander the neighborhood till something happened. And on a good day, uh, you would find out something like the day that we found out that behind Ben's house, up on the little hill, uh, someone, we don't know who, had built a ramp. Uh, And so you knew this was going to be a good day. Because the theory was, and there was pretty general consensus among the kids in the neighborhood, uh, that if we could just, like, 10 or 15 feet this way and a little that way, if we just move the trampoline to the right spot, that you could come off that hill on that ramp, and and Ben could do it. He could land on the trampoline. I was like, well, this is, you know. So we just, like, we all go running to this thing, and you do this, and and, and I have good news. Uh, Ben, Ben, he hit the trampoline. Uh... He also ended up in the ER uh, with a broken collarbone. Uh, but here's the deal. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, and we all scattered, because that's what you did in the 80s. It was the 80s. You just scattered. Like it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't leaving a man behind. It was just understood. That's how. I mean, why should we all be there to get in trouble? He's already going to be in the ER. Like, why do we have to get in trouble, too? And it was understood, because, I mean, look, you just, we thought things through differently back then. We, once you realized you had done something dumb, which you did not realize until someone was crying, uh, you, you, had to, you, know, you had three options. Either he's gonna be able to crawl his own way home, you know? Or two, he's dead, what good are we here? 
Uh, or three, uh, you're going to get home and your mom's going to walk in and go like, what are you doing here early watching Phil Donahue? Uh, uh-oh. And she would go make a phone call. Yeah, he's home too. Where? Ben? Oh, all right. A trampoline, really? And then she'd go running out of the house to find... So somebody's going to come to his rescue. Everything's going to be fine. And all you did was just try to kick the ramp over on the way out like to kind of cover the evidence. But we were shaped by these rhythms and these habits and, and these people. I, I, I wonder, like, I think about so much about the liturgies that shaped us. I wonder today, I wonder if we'll find out that, that one of our liturgies is shaping us is scrolling. Like, is that just one of our habits that's shaping our soul? I, I worry about it. Because the world's really good at shaping our soul, our heart. See, we think they're trying to convince us of an idea. They've realized they don't need to convince us of an idea. They just need to make us fall in love with something without us even knowing we fall in love in it. They know that if they show us the same thing six, seven times, we're not going to want it. But on the eighth time, we're going to remember Liberty National. Maybe I should get insurance from them. Or whoever. On the six months of seeing the same sweater, I'm going to give in and buy it. I don't know how they knew I wanted that sweater. They know that they're shaping my loves. They're not trying to make an argument. They're just trying to take my heart. So these are very good. I don't think we're losing people to good arguments. I think we're losing people to a different vision of what the good life is. I think when they entered in and God said, drive everybody out, and they didn't drive, and God said, they're going to be a thorn in your side, what happened was there was a different vision of what the good life was, a different vision of what could be loved, and they began to love these other gods. They weren't, they weren't walked in, they didn't come in, somebody convinced them of a better argument. They just slowly fell into a different rhythm, a new rhythm, and their hearts were slowly shaped to love a God that wasn't Yahweh. And I think that has been happening ever since. So how do we shape good habits? Well, it's been there all along. It's always been in the Bible. Way back in Deuteronomy, the Shema, uh, this famous thing, it says it's in Deuteronomy uh, chapter six, says this. These are the commandments, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directs me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, their children after them may fear the Lord and your God as long as you live by keeping his decrees, commands that I give you, so that you may enjoy in long life. Hear, Israel, be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the, Lord, uh, the God of your ancestors has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What are good liturgies? Talking about it. Thinking about it. Meditating on it. Tying it on your forehead. Writing it down. Having conversations about it. How good God is and what he has done. That is a good and helpful liturgy that will shape our hearts. I think I have a tendency now to go like, you know what, I know that there's a verse somewhere that says that. I can look it up real quick. But it's not in my heart. It's in my head somewhere, and I can know where to find it, but I want it in my heart. It's the meditating on these things, the repetitive nature of it that shapes our heart. Psalm 1 says this, the blessed man is, sorry, pull this up, please. Thank you. 
Blessed is the one who does not walk in the steps with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or, take sit, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord who meditates on his law day and night. That is the person who is blessed, whose liturgies and rhythms are meditating on what God is like and what he's told us to do. The liturgies of having this in front of us, of having this scripture in front of us, that's how to live a blessed life. Colossians 3 says this, Paul's writing in a different letter to his people and he says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, uh, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so that you may also be forgiven and above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. It's the habit of putting these things on, to get up in the morning and say, I'm gonna put on kindness, I'm gonna put on love. These are things that have to be practiced through repetition. These are things that the Bible says, yes, your heart has changed. Coming to Christ, when you come to Christ by faith in Jesus, you say, I'm giving my life to Christ. What you get is, according to the Bible, is a whole new heart capable of loving in a whole new way. By faith. Being united to Christ, a whole new life possible. And then what do we do? We go live out of that place putting on goodness, putting on kindness, putting on these things, habitually figuring out how to forgive and love. We are formed by spiritual disciplines, primarily worship. The reason we tell the same story every single week is because we believe that this story shapes our hearts. A cruciform-shaped story with Christ in the center by faith united to him, life forever. This story over and over again, it shapes us. It changes us one degree at a time. It keeps us aligned in the right place in a world full of gods trying to distract us. It is the aligning thing that keeps pulling us towards truth. Worship is a huge thing and what we prioritize will show them what we love and will affect what we love. Birmingham Community Church. This starts in our hearts. We want this for our kids, but do, where, do you know where it starts? It starts in our hearts. You want your child to be, the most, you want your child to be more patient? Guess what? You gotta be the most patient person in the house. You want your child to be kind? You have to be kind. You want him to be gentle? If I want my son to be gentle, I'm gonna have to learn to be gentle. It starts in my heart. Not by buckling down, not by just trying harder, not by additional rules, but in our hearts. It starts by changing our loves. Look, every one of these kids is on a journey. Every one of us is on a journey. And it is, we are being driven towards the end of that journey by maybe an unknown love. We can't put words to it, but the thing that leads us is our heart, not our mind. They will go towards the thing their heart desires, what they fall in love with. And we're not going to convince them with rational arguments to be holy and to act right. We're not going to, they're going to fall in love with a picture that we put in front of them of what the good life is. So here's the deal. We need to be great teachers, church. 
We're gonna teach them the lessons. We're gonna, we're gonna put the Bible in front of them. We're gonna bribe them to memorize scripture. Whatever we have to do, get them to learn the Apostles' Creed. We want this in their brain. We have to be great teachers, but we also need to be master painters. Painting the picture of what life in Christ looks like. That yes, there's sacrifice. Yes, there's cost. But there's deep, deep, deep goodness. That, that in forgiving and being forgiven and in repenting and, 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 and confessing and, and doing all of these things, that, that, that life is so much richer and so much fuller, that we're not just trying to bide time till, till eternity comes, but that eternity comes and infects us even now and that this is the good and right and true way to live. We paint that picture every day in front of one another and in front of our kids. This is what we do of how good Jesus is of how beautiful Jesus is, of how much Jesus has done. We not only teach them that, we must paint the picture of that good life in front of them. Because it is a good life. How you spend your days is how you spend your life, yeah? And how we parent how we live out the Christian life in front of them, how we serve and how we care for the poor, how we do all the things that we do on a day-to-day basis, we're shaping their loves, whether we realize it or not. So we need to guard them from things that would misshape their love and put in front of them, their thing, uh, put in front of them habits and disciplines that will shape their heart, rhythms, even though they look repetitive. Yes, that is what shapes your heart. We put these things in front of them so that they stay aligned to what is true and what is good, to the beauty of Christ, to standing before him one day, being prepared to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is what we're doing, and it is beautiful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for for your son, for Jesus. Thank you for this church. I pray for wisdom. Wisdom to teach well, but wisdom also to love well. Wisdom to show, to demonstrate, to live out the faith that we've been entrusted with through Jesus. Make us more like him. Change us. Shape us to be more like Jesus, uh, more just shot through with the beauty of who Christ is so that we all, pointing one another to him in everything, grow up together, bound together, knit together so that, so that you are glorified in our lives, in our church, in this city, in this world, as we declare to the powers and principalities of this world what is good and true and right. Shape us and make us more like Christ. In his name we pray, amen.